This is Joy in Crisis, a 13-week Bay City Church sermon series on the book of Philippians. To learn more about us, visit baycity.church. Well, good morning again, Bay City Church. So glad to see you. And uh, today is going to be an unusual sermon. We're still in the joy of crisis, but we are switching some things around. So this is Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, like a physical Bible, please grab that. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Um, but we haven't addressed Philippians 3.11 through the end of the chapter yet, and we're going to address that next week. But I thought it was prudent to be able to go through Philippians chapter 4 beforehand in light of recent things and recent events that have kind of taken place in our country. And, you know, for me, as you know, a lot of you have reached out and asked me my thoughts on George Floyd, on uh, the police brutality, uh, the police murders, and the injustice and crime, quite honestly, crime committed uh, by our police in, in recent days. And you've asked me my opinion. And uh, I, like I mentioned in our video last week, just shortly, briefly, that I just didn't feel like I was in the right mind to be able to address that fully for you. And I, I feel like, quite honestly, angry, upset, a little bit confused. And I wanted to be able to spend some time really thinking this through and uh, being with the Lord and understanding what he has to say. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 5 really helps me be able to do that. But if I'm honest with you, the word that really comes up for me is despair. Despair. Um, I think, is there, a, is there an answer to the injustice in our country? Is there an answer to the racial tension and division in this country? And it quite honestly feels a little bit like we're spinning our wheels as a society. And that's hard for me. Um, for me, the conflict that we're seeing on television isn't theoretical. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not distanced from me. Uh, while I have never been brutally assaulted by police officers, I've experienced many different, um, how do I call it, run-ins with racism in my past. And I'm not an old man, but... Uh, I'm a large man, I'm a big guy, and I am multi-ethnic, but my father is black. And when you're in certain contexts, you're just a black man. And uh, that's the way you know people put it to me, at least. I've had many police encounters. When I was 13 years old, uh, I lived in Vallejo uh, with my mom and, and uh, my young, younger sister. And we get our house broken into all the time. And one particular occasion, uh, the... The police came after one of the break-ins. We were in the home when they broke in, sleeping. They stole my mom's car and stole some other stuff. Stole her microwave, weirdly enough. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny uh, in a weird, twisted way. <laughs> I laugh. But one of the weird things was they brought the car back. Uh, they brought my mom's car back. And with her purse in the dashboard, just the money gone out of her purse. And when the police came, they did have a suspect. And the prime suspect was me. Uh, I was a big, I was a big 13 year old. I was probably six foot one, six feet tall, 200 pounds. It's a big third, it's a big 13 year old. And, uh, I was hoping for like six, five growing. I didn't, didn't show. I, I only grew a few more inches. Uh, nonetheless, I was the prime suspect. And so I was made to sit down and to be questioned by the police as if I committed the crime. Now I'm 13 years old at the time and was in the house. Um, a few other times running down the street, I was swarmed by police, made to lay down on the ground and arms behind the back, the whole thing, and they thought I was running from a crime. I was actually just playing tag with my little sister. I was 12, and uh, she was 10, and so she ran up behind me because she was slower. She ran up behind me trying to chase me, and then she's like, we're just playing tag, and she looked much more like a kid at the time than I did. There's all sorts of these events that have happened you know, with police encounters, but the, probably the most sad, and really there's not enough time to share all of these with you, um, 
some of the most sad ones had to do really with, with churches. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, I was pulled over in, when I was in Chicago and, uh, pulled over and before the church events even, and being made to do some field sobriety tests when I hadn't drank, drinking, drinking anything. And the other police officer would question my wife to see if she was safe because she's white. Things like that, that other people don't probably have to go through. But in churches in particular, it wasn't until I got involved in church that I realized that really the fall of man and the depravity of human beings when it came to racism. Growing up in the Bay Area, I didn't see race as much as most people. I knew people were different, but I didn't think of racism. I had friends of all different creeds, but when I moved to the Northwest and understand the racial history of Portland and Seattle and and, in Idaho and Montana and understanding why those places are the way they are, I got to experience some of that racism. I remember the first time I got to the uh, Moscow, Idaho, uh, where I went to college, I walked into the middle of a white pride rally, uh, 18 years old with a few friends that were black playing football and they said, you shouldn't be here. And I looked over at the sign and it was a white pride parade. They were bobbing for apples, they were jump for funds, it looked like a regular party, but we weren't welcome. Those are the sort of things that I've experienced that other people maybe have great experiences there. But in church specifically, it was really difficult because being a, as, as a black or multi-ethnic man, going into church, you just don't think people will be racist because people believe in Jesus. And uh, I remember one particular moment, um, I, I took over a youth group and we started to have some cool success with the youth group and some new kids were coming, kids that were multi-ethnic and diverse were joining the youth group, a lot of athletes. And uh, I was still playing in the NFL at the time and it was going well. And I had a, a man who worked at the church or worked around, around the church essentially say that, you know, hey, this is a, a great ministry, but you've really transformed the ministry that we had. Um, that ministry is not a ministry that like we've always envisioned for our church. And what you're doing seems like different. You should start an inner city ministry for these kids. And then that way we can have our ministry. Uh, it's like separate but equal. Um, that hasn't been super successful in our country. And uh, thankfully that got shut down by the pastor, the lead pastor, but the kids that we were bringing in weren't inner city kids. They were just kids from the neighborhood. They just weren't white. Um, later in that, just later that year actually, I remember a scenario where we did a Saturday night Easter service for young adults and we had a lot of people there. It was great. We got to baptize seven kids. It was a really, really awesome time, like high school, middle school, college kids. We baptized seven people. And that Monday, I got asked to go speak um, to the, the, the man that wanted to engage me about, you know, the same person about the inner city ministry. And for two hours, I sat across from him. I was probably 24 years old and he sat across from me and told me everything I did wrong in the, about the church and just told me everything that I was doing wrong. This is what you did wrong. This is how you shouldn't have preached and let me give you some feedback. And then the thing that stuck out to me is what he said that when I preached, I, I, I appeared to be a caged gorilla. I was intense and large and I was, an, I was a caged gorilla. Um, I went home and I cried. Like I, I didn't know what to do. I was a big football player. I'd never experienced anyone call me a gorilla before. Um, and uh, it was really hard for me to see someone who was a Christian be so overtly and obviously racist. And the sad part was I don't even know how racist, if he knew he was racist. I don't know. Uh, I still have doubts. Planting Bay City Church, our church, um, 
we are plant, we planted a church in Bayview. This is the, probably the last majority black neighborhood in San Francisco. And all of you watching, you know, it's not a lot of, not all of you live in Bayview. Um, you know, we have a very diverse church, but not all of you live in Bayview. Some of you do, some of you are transient, some of you are natives. We're kind of a, a good mix of everyone, but yet this wasn't without its challenges. I remember coming into the neighborhood and having people in the community tell me that I would not be accepted because I was married to a white woman. That would be hard for them to accept me being married to someone who's white. I remember that being a huge problem. I remember having various people as a part of our church. And listen, I'm going to get really open and honest because I don't think there's a time to be coded here. So if this is really bothering you, send me an email. Let's get on a Zoom call. Let's have a conversation, quite honestly. Um, but we've had people in our church really struggle with following black leadership. And that's language they used. Hey, I don't know if I can follow someone who's black. Um, I've had people come in and say, hey, I'm longing for diverse neighborhood. I'm longing to be a part of something new and unique and special. And, you know, Colin Kaepernick this and, you know, uh, all of the different stuff that's happening. I'm just interested in being a part of that. And then the moment that challenges arise from being in diverse and multi-ethnic contexts and following leadership that doesn't look like, you know, the same kind of leader that anyone else would follow, a white leader, of course, um, as soon as those challenges raise themselves, they leave and they go to the nearest monolithic or white church they can find. That's not an isolated incident. That's happened probably six or seven times um, as, we've gone, as we've gone on as a church. Um, it's been quite honestly very difficult because one of the hard things about planting Bay City was coming in, I had I fears about being a, a non-white church planner. Church planning is a primarily white movement. I don't know if you know that, but... Uh, it hasn't really reached the black community. Now, of course, it's coming. And of course, black, there are, I, many of my best friends are black church planters and I'm a black church planter. It is happening, but it, it is not happening the way it is happening in the white community. And so a black church planter is something different. And so coming in, I feel like I've had to over-qualify and over-show uh, my education so that way I'd be accepted um, as someone who's black. Um, uh, many of the moments come to mind of people being surprised that, you know, I've pursued master's degrees in the past and being surprised that uh, I have as many books as I do. And, um, you know, the, me and my, my white pastor friends have these conversations where whites, white pastors have to kind of uh, shrink themselves down so that they don't feel, so they seem more approachable and black leaders have to kind of push themselves up so they don't seem as uneducated as people might envision in their minds. Now, you may completely disagree with that, that this is happening, but the fact of the matter is many of, the, many of my friends in this church have experienced that sort of, sort of racial tension in our church. I've experienced it in our church from people that are here and people that are not here. Um, and it troubles me, quite honestly, that we have, uh, that for white people, it's difficult to follow black leadership. I literally sat in a conference, um, a conference at a major church planning organization that we're not affiliated with. And the white leader said, on, he was doing a talk on multi-ethnic leadership. Of course, I'm interested in multi-ethnic leadership, multi-ethnic church. And so during that conversation, um, during that talk he gave in front of thousands of people, he said this. He said, you know, the key to starting a multi-ethnic church is really to make sure that the lead pastor is white. Because if the lead pastor is white... All of the other leadership, the worship leader, the discipleship pastor, they can be black, they can be Latino or whatever, but the lead pastor has to be white because that's who people are used to following. Now, I left obviously very devastated, but it would be, more de it would be less devastating if it wasn't actually true. 
That's not true for everybody, but my experience has been in, in our church for the last few years that it's difficult for people to follow leaders that don't aren't the typical glasses-wearing, flannel-wearing, hipster church planter that's cool and that gains more authority. It's been difficult to accept that as a church planter. And it's been hard to sit on my hands where people have uttered racist things to me across the table. Very hard. Some of you that I love very much hurt me very much. And some of you that... Um, I may have hurt saying something else. I think we all need to begin be becoming aware of some of this, but I just want to share my, share my experience with you. You know, again, the despair that trickles in is very hard to accept, but as a, when I became a Christian, coming across Genesis chapter 11, it really made sense. You know, Genesis chapter 11 tells the story of the Tower of Babel and how all mankind gets together and they're going to devise a plan to kind of make themselves famous. You know, our tag is make Jesus famous. Well, they wanted to make themselves famous. They wanted to build a tower to their glory and for their joy. And God kind of looked upon, the, the text says, and saw that what they were doing was not good. And they scattered those people and they would change their languages so that they would not be able to communicate because they would do evil together. But luckily for us, that's not just an evil God doing something. He also has a plan. His plan is that one day he would fix this problem, right? He, he doesn't want them to act, uh, unite in rebellion. He wants them to unite in unity one day. And he knows as an act of unity that one day they could do that. And he, he enacts a plan. But you know, his plan isn't bipartisan politics, His plan is not republicanism or being a Democrat, being a part of the alt-right or Antifa or a social justice warrior or a Nazi or whatever. This isn't God's plan. Now, if you think a political party can fix injustice, you really have another thing coming. Political parties have been in control for a long time in Minnesota, and that's where George Floyd was killed. Minnesota police use excessive force on black people seven times more than their white counterparts. That's just a statistic. That has nothing to do with getting all the facts. You want the facts? There's the facts. Seven times more on black people. And you might say, well, black people are more aggressive or they're more likely to commit crime. That's part of the problem. Your thought, your heart on that. Black Americans are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white people. Two and a half times more likely. 250% chance. So if you think, man, my white experience is no different than a black experience in America. Well, if nothing else, you have a, Black people have a two and a half times more likely chance to be killed by a police officer than you do. And according to a study from the, from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the USA, about one in every, one, about one in every 1,000 black men can expect it to be killed by police. Now, this is a study. The National Academy of the Sciences of the United States, look it up. One in every 1,000 black men can expect to be killed by police. So if you think you can solve an issue, a political issue, by certainly voting Republican, uh, you've got another thing coming. But the other side of the aisle, the same problem exists. It's not, it's, not a part of, it's, not a, it's not a political party. It's not Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Barack Obama or any president that's causing the problem. There's a much deeper nature issue. If you vote Democrat, 55% of all abortions in the United States are done for black and Latino women. 55% of the abortions in America are to black and Latino children. 550,000 abortions done on black and Latino women. Now, or uh, on black and Latino women. And the sad part about that is, the, the, the sad part of that, there's a million abortions every year. 78% of clinics 
of Planned Parenthood, the temples of Planned Parenthood are in walking distance of a black neighborhood. Now, people actually do some bizarre things to change the statistic. What they'll do is they'll look at zip codes and then like redistrict as if to kind of make it seem like that's actually not the case. 78% of clinics are in walking distance of a black neighborhood. Now, the, I'm not going to get into the history of Planned Parenthood and how all of these things have gone down and the racist history of the eugenics movement and all of these things. All that to say, people are dying in the womb and outside of the womb and it's not a good thing and partisan politics don't help it. And so if you're going to want to understand this issue, you're going to have to think outside of your political preferences. So what's God's plan? Well, Jesus comes. He decides he wants to unite the world. In Acts chapter 2, in this wonderful chapter, we see people coming together and listening to a sermon preached. And the people heard that message in their own language and in their own dialect. That's what happened. The book of Acts is God's remedy to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to talk today about the Church of Antioch and this multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-socioeconomic church that became the antidote for the Tower of the Babel. The church's job was always to be the solution to the division and injustice in our communities. That's the church's function. This political party will not make this happen. The church has to make it happen because the church was created to bridge racial and socioeconomic divide. That was what it was created for, and we're going to explore that. So we're going to learn from the diverse Christian movement that infuses a multi-ethnic narrative that has been lost in Western society and other societies as well. So what are four things, what are things, four things that diverse churches do? I mean, let's explain that. And we're going to start in Philippians again, chapter one or chapter four, verse one. The church has the power to overcome conflict. The church has power to overcome conflict. Look at uh, verse one with me. Therefore, my brothers, Paul talking, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two women that are in conflict with one another within the church. Yes, I, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, probably a third party, maybe a pastor, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. The church has the power to overcome conflict like nothing else does. First thing we see here is he says, stand firm in the Lord. Here's one thing our society can't do. Stand firm in the Lord. This is one thing our society hasn't been able to do is be united in anything. Instead of being united in the Lord, we're divided by evolutionary theory. That's what, that's what we are. And we all subscribe, not to the unity of Jesus, but to the evolution principles of Charles Darwin, who, by the way, his original title for his book, The Origin of Species, that's an abbreviated title. The original title of his, of his book is this, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. So we all subscribe to an evolutionary theory that was produced by a man who's trying to prove certain races are more valuable than others. And you think your society isn't riddled with systemic racism? If you just overtly and obviously believe that because, quote, science, then you believe a racist ideology. Now, this isn't to make a case against evolution or for evolution. I'm telling you that the man that created the theory that all of us subscribe to was trying to prove that white race was better than others. Do something with that. What do you have? You got to do something with that. You can't just go, well, that's fine. Well, sure, you can believe that. I don't want to believe a racist ideology. I want to understand the truth. We need to be able to tap into the power of real changed hearts and minds. And this is what the standing firm in the Lord can do. Unlike anything else, 
education. People have been educated for years. Jobs, politics, all of these things are attempting to try to fix a solution, but you know what? None of it can. Only God's sovereign power and vision for people can. Standing firm in the middle of conflict. Verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually find joy in the Lord instead of joy in Twitter, instead of joy of arguments? And he says, again, I will say rejoice. Yeah, we need to be reminded. And he says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You know what's one thing you don't see on Twitter today? Reasonableness. You ever see anyone be reasonable in an argument on social media? No. People just blurt out whatever they want to say. They, they take up an offense and then they go to bat for it and they're never reasonable. Never. Never. I mean, I, one, someone I know, my, a friend of mine, talked to him about this this week and I'm gonna, he allowed me to share this. He said this, I'm glad there is no church this, this month because I don't have it in my heart to forgive. What if Jesus had said that? You know what? I'm going to go to cross, but I just don't have it in my heart to forgive these people. You know, when we make judgments like that, when you, even for some of us, we're angry about what happened to George Floyd. We're, we're livid about murder and police brutality. And if you say, I don't have the heart in my heart to forgive a person or police in general for committing the crime against George Floyd, I don't have it in my heart to, to forgive. You know what you're really doing? You're making yourself a more righteous judge than Christ. I am so glad Jesus didn't look upon my sin and say, you know what? I don't have it in my heart to forgive you today. I'm so glad he didn't say that. Jesus died for sin, past, present, and future. That means Christ is able to somehow look down and be in the present corridor of time, look down and see what the suffering and injustice was coming and still go to the cross. If you want blood, you've got your blood. That blood is shed by Jesus. The church has that power. The next thing, the church speaks to different creeds and cultures. The church speaks to different cultures and creeds. Now, focusing on the church of Antioch, thinking about this church for a second in Acts chapter 11, we get world's truly first diverse church. That's what we get in this text. We get ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically diverse church. Now, Antioch's population was like 500,000 people. Think about the peninsula of the, of the Bay Area, right? Diverse people groups, Jews, Greeks, let me get this right, Arabs, Armenians, Romans, Syrians, Cappadocians, North Africans, all combined in the same area. And the church in Antioch spoke to all these different crowds as well. Let me read you Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says this, Now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. So think about Greeks, right? Gentiles. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And at the hand of the, at the, hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see that initially these leaders spoke to Jews, but then they began speaking to cultural Greeks as well. And what was the result? Many people turned to the Lord. Now, it's more subtle in our day, but when we share the gospel, our gospels contextualize often to our worldview, right? When we share the gospel today, we share out of our experience, you know, our white experience, our black experience, the way I was raised, the way I was, if I was poor, if I was rich, if I was a simple person, if I was a doctor, or if I was a, a, a gardener, if I was a tech professional, I speak out of the way I was raised and my experiences, but in order for us to reach as many people as possible, we're going to have to learn to speak to people that are different than us, 
people that are different languages and different vernaculars and are from different countries and have different, different opinions on the United States flag or the national anthem. We're going to have to be able to do that. We're going to have to intentionally seek out to help teach people that are different than us and help learn from people that are different for us so we can get to the point where we're all being transformed by the work of the gospel. Do you understand? Church speaks to different cultures and creeds. The next thing, the church has diverse leaders. In Antioch, the church had different leaders. Now, I shared you my story. If we want a multi-ethnic church, we have to have a white leader. I, sh I, I would say, why? Why should we bend to the rules of societal discrimination and injustice just for the sake of the gospel? Should we become like the world in order to save it? That's not the message of the gospel. Do not be conformed to the world, Romans 12.2 says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what it says. Be different, not be the same. We cannot expect to be diverse in our churches or communities if our leadership is not diverse. Our leadership has to be diverse. Look at verse 22 of Acts chapter 11. The, re the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the spirit and of faith, and, a many, gra and a many great people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who was Paul, right? So we see here, Saul, Paul, and Barnabas are joining these leaders in, in, in Acts 11, right? He's joining this church in Antioch. We also see that there are five key leaders in this region amongst many others. So listen to this, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, so let me break this down for you, okay? Let me break these people down. So Saul, or Paul, and Barnabas, they were Jews, they were Jews, who grew up outside of Palestine, okay? So they were immersed in Greek culture. They were bilingual, speaking Aramaic and Greek. So that's a very diverse culture, okay? This is not like being born in Idaho. God, I love Idaho. It's where I went to college. It's not like being born in Idaho. You always raised in Idaho. These people were, they were Jews and they were, grew up speaking Greek, immersed in Greek culture. And then we have Menaean. Menaean is interesting, okay? Check this one out. Menaean is interesting because he's a friend of and grew up in the household of Herod Antipas. Do you know anything about Herod? So Herod was the guy that persecuted the church and, and beheaded Jesus Christ's cousin, John the Baptist. He grew up in that culture. This is like being on the cabinet of Donald Trump, right? Or being on the cabinet of Queen Elizabeth or being working for Putin or working with King Jong-un. This is what this was like. Or working with any leader, right? Any world leader. They were immersed in the leadership of a country. This is powerful. Scholars have surmised that he probably was Herod Antipas' stepbrother, okay? He was really well-connected, and yet he's a leader in the church. And so you have left-wing, you have right-wing. You have culturally diverse in cities, and you have upright working with the king and with, with the emperor, okay? And now you've got Simeon called Niger. Simeon was a black man, most likely from North Africa, okay? And then you have Lucius of Serene, migrated from Africa to Antioch as well. And so you've got all of these diverse people coming together. The church leadership consists of Greek Jews who are in Greek culture, Romans, friends of Christian enemies, North Africans, rich and poor, Europeans, and Middle Easterners, all together in the same church leadership. A church with diverse leadership can bring perspective to many cultures that monolithic church leadership cannot. You know, I, so many times we have conversations with people that friends are in business 
or friends that are in church leadership, they go, hey, we want a more diverse church, or hey, we want a more diverse uh, team of salesmen. And I often say, well, okay, well, or anyone might say, who's on your leadership team? Okay, well, if your VP of sales is white, if your VP of marketing is white, if your director of sales and your director of marketing are white, if all your managers are white, and maybe you have one or two Asians in there, uh, and uh, maybe one Indian, well, how do you expect to hire any black people if you guys don't have any relationships? You know, people hire business people and put people on boards because they have relationships with them. If you're not in proximity to any black people or Latinos, you're never gonna put one on your board. So if you want a diverse board, you're gonna have to go make some friends. That's what it means. But diverse leadership team means you don't have to be able to do that because you already have that ingrained. Multi -church, multi, many churches desire multi-ethnic congregations, but many of them have monocultural leadership. Now, it doesn't have to be all white to be monocultural, okay? It can be white, Asian, black, Latino, but if it's all one culture, if it's all one overarching ethnic culture or usually Anglo culture, then you're gonna have the same result, okay? We need diverse leadership. The next thing, and the last thing that the church can do that's distinct from the world it's in, the church has to be different from the world. It has to be different. Today, the church has not only looked the same as the world it's in, but it's played in the world's social climate and the world and the social climate's demise. And this is both upper white evangelical conservative Christian churches and sort of liberal ideal, idealistic churches, both camps, okay? I'm being, obviously I'm characterizing, not all churches fall in those categories, but you get what I'm saying, right? Both of these, these polarizations of church have fallen in these categories. Last part of verse 26 in chapter 11. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this is the first time the word Christian is used. So back then in the first century, you were called by your region or your people group, right? The Jews, you were the, you could be the Ephesians, you could be the Romans, you could be the Canaanites, right? You were, you were where you were from and you were who you were, okay? But here we have this first multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic church. And so the onlookers, didn't know what to call this group of people. And they were so distinct that they couldn't call them anything but by identify them by who they served, who their God was. So they called them Christians. That's why the word exists. The church today does not have the same effect. We know that the most segregated time of the week is Sunday service. We understand that around the United States. The church has aided the downfall of the West by being separatistic, filled with angst, and aligning with political parties. The church is supposed to have an aroma of a distinct nature loving, kind, truthful, diverse, and authentic. And we don't have it. So this is what the church needs to be, but there are probably four things we need to do it if we want our communities and as individuals want to live diverse lives. Okay, so let me talk to you as an individual or as a community for a second. So first thing, if you want diverse church or if you want a diverse community, you have to live a diverse life. You have to live a diverse life. Social media is a good at times, it's amoral. It could be bad and it could be good. But only using social media as a, as a sort of a, what's a, a badge or a bar on your coat of diversity is not enough. You're gonna have to do more than simply put a blackout on your Instagram feed or say Black Lives Matter or say I wanna work towards diversity. You actually have to live out some of this. And one of the ways you do that is by being intentionally uncomfortable in the life you live. At Bay City Church, I hope that we've been trying to lead us towards, this isn't a new conversation at Bay City, but we want to be able to put ourselves in situations where we're not comfortable so that we might progressively become more comfortable with people that aren't like us, people that are different than us. 
man, in our early church uh, gatherings, some of you that were here, you know how uncomfortable some of the conversations were because we had such diverse people groups in the room. That's what we want. Now, many people see injustice on TV, and I know you're watching, and you see no remorse. And you think, I need to get to the fact of the situation. Let me look at the statistics. Let me see uh, what CNN and Fox News are both saying. Let me read Al Jazeera. Let me read Vox. Let me read RT. Let me go through all of the media. Let me go through Breitbart and get the actual facts of this situation. But you know what? If your mother died, you would not go to, this, to the uh, blogosphere and find the facts on her death. You would cry. Because you have empathy to your, for your mother, Right? When you lack proximity to people, you will 100% lack empathy. And so if the only black people you know are faces of criminals that they played on the five o'clock news, then you're gonna have a vision of a black person in your mind that isn't a good one. If you're a police officer and the only vision of Latinos that you know are the ones you arrest, then you're gonna think all Latinos are bad people. That's what you're gonna think. When you lack proximity, you lack empathy. And by the way, you know, I, I think, who was it? Chris Rock said this, you know, the great prophet Chris Rock. He said, all my black friends have tons of white friends and all my white friends have one black friend. <laughs> That's amazing because I'm actually the one black friend of many of my white friends and I'm not even all that black. I'm only half black. So it's just a funny, ironic thing to say. You're gonna need more than one token friend. You're gonna have to go out and actually make relationships with people that are different than you. And for you at Bay City, I know so many of you strive at this, so I'm speaking your language. I might even be preaching to the choir right now. But still, this is a word that all of us need, including myself. We need to go per per pursue diverse relationships. The last thing you can, or one of the next things you can do, and, and you've heard me say this, is to use your dinner table as warfare against cultural and classist division. Who can you eat with? Meals are so central to God's story. The Passover meal, the wedding supper at the lamb, all of these are so fundamental to the Lord. Dinner table is a way we can cross barriers. So challenge you, invite people to dinner. Go out to coffee with people that are different than you and get to know them that are different than you. Don't assume you have the answers, especially if you're part of a privileged culture. Don't assume. Ask questions and learn. One of my favorite preachers says, I needed to learn and I needed to listen as a white person. I need to learn and I need to listen. Sometimes we just need to listen. We don't have the answer. Next thing, pursue humility as we grow in understanding of other cultures. Pursue humility as we grow in understanding of cultures. We must realize that as we have much to learn about this world. We have much to learn. We also must realize that there's a lot we don't know. And Pride says you know everything and therefore don't need a response, but if you get a response, you'll fact check it because you're smarter. Humility says, you know what, I'm gonna go with the assumption that I might be wrong and I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and if I'm proven wrong later, that's okay with me. That's humility, be humble. Humility is realizing that none of us have the full picture. No matter how many blogs or books you read, you really don't have the full picture until you have conversations with people, not arguments with people. The next thing, don't criticize, create. Don't criticize, create. Now, I took this phrase from my, my pastor friend, Derwin Gray, who's a pastor out on the East Coast. But you know, as I've planted Bay City and as I've been in other churches and other church plants, I've always heard, you know, we want a diverse church. We want to be a part of a diverse church. The church I come from isn't diverse. And um, you know, it's easy to sit back and criticize. It really is. 
even if it's your company, let's talk about your company for a second. Let's say you don't go to church or maybe you do go to church, but you're, you're talking about your company. You're like, oh, I just want a more diverse company. Well, do you have relationships with friends that you can recommend? Because you know that referrals go a long way. If you only refer people that are the same color as you, then why on earth would they ever, why, why, how would your church or your um, job get more diverse? Don't criticize, create. Help us build a church that would model God's plan to the nations and help your company build a company that will model that to the nations. And then lastly, and I'll land the plane here. I know it's been a long one for you. Realize Jesus' plan for diversity is larger than yours. Now, as much as woke as you feel right now, maybe you've watched so many videos and movies and blogs and now you're tweeting and your company's donating money and you're all hyped up on gassed up about diversity, good for you, I'm thankful for that. But in order for you to keep it going, you're gonna have to realize that Jesus' plan for diversity is far greater than any sort of worldly diversity plan that your company or you are ever gonna make. Ultimately, our little plans are so small to, to, to compare to what God has been planning from the beginning. Like I said earlier, Genesis chapter 11, everyone gets scattered. God's plan eventually was that instead of people being divided in, in hatred for one another, they would be united in unity. Instead of being divided in selfishness, they would be united in selflessness. You see, God's plan was that Jesus Christ would come into the world. He would live a perfect life. So perfect, in fact, that people would hate him and he'd be killed. For his beliefs, for his created world, he'd be killed but that he would raise from the dead three days later. And that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead saying that anyone who believed in me would not perish but, not, but have eternal life forever. But the story doesn't stop there. And if you've been taught that, you've been lied to. The story goes far beyond that. See, this world that we've been, that we've been living on has been broken for a long time. It's been fractured. And we're not just fractured from the planet itself, creation, but we're also fractured from one another. That's where racism and sexism and prejudice come in. We're fractured from one another. And Jesus' plan isn't that you would have a privatized Christian American faith and go to heaven one day, but that instead you would actually be united to your brother and sister in Christ one day forever, that every tribe, tongue, and nation would, and every knee would bow before the Lord Jesus Christ together in unity. And right now, as we wait for the kingdom of God to be finished and actualized, we have a role to play today, that we get to slowly work the kingdom of God forward in our lives today. And that begins with breaking down barriers. It begins with making black, Latino, Chinese, white friends. It begins with making friends that are and not in your socioeconomic class. They don't have the same house value as you, not the same 401k number as you. It begins with that. And as you progress toward this kingdom of God ideal, you'll begin to sense and smell the kingdom of God through Christ. But you're only going to get that if you worship Jesus. Because no political party, no ideology, and no Twitter post is ever going to unite the world. But this King Jesus can. Let's pray.